Hello and welcome to a special uh, kind of intermediate lecture for History 327. I'm Dr. Stuart Tully. Um, it's just after the storm. I guess uh, I should ask y'all how you're doing. Uh, this might be the first time you've, seen, you've heard my voice in a while. Going to have a couple recorded podcasts up uh, for this week. Uh, make sure you listen to the one. This one is going to be uh, Red Scare and Eisenhower. And then also listen to the one about the golden age of the middle class. Um, th this one, it was stuff I was going to cover, but I kind of ran out of time during our last class period. I believe the last time we talked, I mentioned something about uh, the Korean War. Uh, make sure you listen to that NPR podcast about it. But, uh, you know, after all this, uh, it's looking like uh, Truman is, is fairly dead. Uh, fairly dead. But what comes to the immediate is something called the Red Scare. So today we're going to be talking about the Red Scare and also uh, early Eisenhower. Early, early, early Eisenhower. So if you go over to the PowerPoint, there's one PowerPoint called Truman and Eisenhower. It's a big, long one. It's actually several lectures worth. Uh, click over to slide number 22 where it has a picture of um, Truman and MacArthur. That actually has to do with, uh, with the Korean War. Go over one more to slide 23. Red Scare is this tomorrow. America under communism. Uh, just some good old-fashioned propaganda. Some good old-fashioned propaganda. Now, I do need to mention, there are several Red Scares. There are several Red Scares uh, throughout the late 40s, early 50s, particularly the early 50s. There are several Red Scares. I'm really going to focus on Joseph McCarthy. There's a couple other ones I'm going to kind of mention uh, very briefly. Actually, the earliest version of this is what's known as the Lavender Scare. Uh, the Lavender Scare has to do with the fear of uh, people being susceptible to blackmail within this uh, within the state office, within the uh, you know the State Department, and basically uh, there, there's a fear that people who are susceptible to blackmail uh, might be uh, you know blackmailed by the communist into uh, giving uh, very sensitive information. Uh, a couple of groups of people this this goes to alcoholics, gamblers. The big one though is homosexuals. Now, I don't have a special slide for this, but uh, it's my class, and I can talk about the Lavender Scare if I want to. Uh, the Lavender Scare basically applies to homosexuals. During this time period of the late 40s, early 50s, being an out homosexual really isn't a thing. Uh, I'm not saying there are no homosexuals. There are. There have been homosexuals for forever. But uh, the idea of being an out homosexual was not something really allowed in American society. Uh, there are plenty of people who were gay, but there was something done very secret. Now, the fear is that basically the communists are going to find about these gay folks that are going to blackmail them into giving up all sorts of state secrets. And so basically this turns into a purge of the State Department and other government facilities uh, trying to find homosexuals and pretty much getting them to leave the State Department. It really becomes a purge against homosexuals. Uh, very much one of these type of red scares. They're not really looking for communists. They're looking for homosexuals under the fear that maybe they could get involved with uh, being blackmailed by communists. Uh, another fairly famous early um, scare, I guess you'd say, one of the more famous early trials, is uh, the, the case of Alger Hiss. Uh, Alger Hiss is the man there on the left. He is the bag man for FDR during the Yalta Conference. Uh, he does work for the State Department in this time period. And he is accused of being a communist spy, basically giving information over to the Russians by one Whitaker Chambers. Uh, Whitaker Chambers basically claims he knows this because he and Hiss were lovers, and basically um, Hiss told him about that in bed. So this, this you know, gets it way more interesting, way more um, 
interest in this. More people are like, oh, okay, we're, we're very intrigued about what all this is talking about. Uh, some people didn't believe it because Aldrichus was a very um, tall, slender, uh, conventionally handsome uh, individual. Uh, during this trial, he wasn't sweating, even though it was a very hot summer in D.C. They didn't have air conditioner. He said, no, I'm just wearing this white linen suit. It keeps me from sweating. As opposed to that, Whitaker Chambers is, is overweight. He's slovenly. He speaks with a lisp. He is an admitted, okay, he's an admitted bisexual. And he's also an admitted former member of the Communist Party. And he's claiming that Hiss is not only uh, gay, but also his gay lover and a member of a, 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 and a communist spy. Uh, Hiss always maintained that he did not give secret information over to the Russians. He did give information over to the Russians, but it was World War II and they were our allies. Um, this really turns into this big hullabaloo. I can tell you some more interesting facts about it. Um... Chambers claims that he, he found the, the tape reels that uh, Hiss was using to give over to the Russians uh, hidden in a pumpkin patch in his front yard. He basically finds a pumpkin, even though the State Department looked and they couldn't find the pumpkin. But Hiss, sorry, Chambers found the pumpkin almost immediately with a little camera reel in it. Uh, it doesn't really matter who is guilty, who's not guilty. I'm pretty sure Hiss got off, even though he might have actually been a spy. Uh, the thing you do want to know about this, this is the first time that Richard Nixon comes onto the political scene. I don't have a picture of young Richard Nixon there. Uh, Richard Nixon, during this time, he's a very young uh, go-getter, very uh, anti-communist. In fact, if you know nothing else about Richard Nixon, uh, know that he is viewed as Mr. Anti-Communist. He is viewed as Mr. Anti-Communist. That, that's his whole shtick in this time period. He's a young war hero. You know, He was in the Navy in World War II. Very young man during this time period. The late 20s, I'd say. But Richard Nixon first comes to national attention. Nixon's going to become pretty important as this class goes on. If you know nothing else about Richard Nixon, well, I mean, no, he's a dirty crook who got all sorts of things in Watergate, but also know his entire political career was built upon being anti-communist, as demonstrated by his involvement in the Whitaker Chambers, Alger Hiss case. Uh, the other one you might want to know about is the Hollywood trials, the, the Hollywood Red Scare. Uh, this is the Hollywood blacklist, basically the idea that Hollywood is very leftist and there's a fear that there are movie makers that are putting in all sorts of leftist propaganda in the movies. Um, make a long story short, it was mainly, uh, you know, try to rat out your friends for going to kind of leftist um, political meetings, you know, which may or may not have been communist. Uh, something you probably know much more about. I'm not going to get too much into. <clears throat> but I do want to mention, though, this is where Ronald Reagan first comes on as a political figure. Uh, Reagan had been an actor before this time period. Actually, uh, during the Hollywood Red Scare, he was actually president of the Screen Actors Guild. And unlike a lot of other actors, he named names. Uh, this time period, Reagan was a Democrat. He was a New Deal Democrat. But he felt that communists were a threat, and he was willing to name names, say whoever was a communist, or a particular communist, or anybody who was maybe a little left of center. Uh, he named names. Gives him the enmity of a lot of Hollywood, because he rats out Hollywood. However, it gets him a lot of political power. Um, later on, he'll become governor of California, and then, of course, he'll become president of the United States. But let's get to the guy I want to talk about, Mr. Joseph McCarthy. There he is. There's, there's Joey McCarthy. Uh, he's a tail gunner for World War II. He's a tail gunner for World War II. They always called him Tail Gunner, tail gunner Joe. Uh, that is somebody in like a, a bomber plane 
who's on the tail gunner, who is like basically it's a it's a it's a it's a job on a plane with a very high mortality rate. Very high mortality rate. Uh, he does survive. He's known as a bit of a scrapper. He's a Republican. He's actually pretty young when he becomes a junior senator from Wisconsin. Uh, he becomes a senator from Wisconsin by defeating LaFollette. Uh, LaFollette was a longtime Democrat leftist uh, staple. He, he was honestly a fixture, almost considered part of the furniture in Wisconsin. He'd been there for forever, but this young, energetic, conservative voice, uh, actually beyond conservative, to the right of conservative, Joseph McCarthy, uh, really wins by slinging all sorts of mud at LaFollette. Basically, he keeps attacking LaFollette. Uh, and then attacking him some more before LaFollette can even respond. It's basically keep the pressure on and keep it hard. He is hitting LaFollette left and right. And so when he gets to Washington, I mean, you, you got to realize, all right, I'm, I'm not going to speak ill of the Senate, and I'm not really even speaking ill of the Senate, but the junior senator is not going to get that much panache in Washington. No offense to senators. Senators are very important. There's only 100 of them. Actually, this time period, there were not even 100 of them. There were... Oh, God, 90-something, uh, 90 96 senators at this time period because Hawaii and Alaska weren't states yet. Uh, still in Washington, in politics, politics, everything is about seniority. Everything is about seniority. Everything is about how long have you been there. Um, appointments, uh, important committees, things like that. Uh, that is all dependent upon your seniority. And no offense to Joseph McCarthy as a junior senator, he has no panache. Likewise, he comes out of nowhere, defeats a staple of LaFollette. And so when he gets to Washington, he doesn't feel that he gets as much respect as he deserves. He believes that he should be a bigger deal. He, he defeated LaFollette. He should be getting the choice appointments. He should be viewed as the, his, as the uh, not the history, but the future of the Republican Party. And instead, he's not given much of anything. The Republicans in Congress, uh, they don't really talk to him that much. Most Republicans on a national level are a, are a bit more moderate than he is. And so he feels slighted. He feels slighted. And so in order to combat this, he decides to throw a live bomb. In February of 1950, he throws a live bomb um, at a most unlikely place, which is the women's, sorry, the Republican Women's Club of Wheeling, West Virginia. That's right. If you're going to make a big pronouncement, you go to Wheeling, West Virginia, to the Republican Women's Club, which was honestly a women's auxiliary of the Republican Party. Uh, very much a ladies who lunch place uh, to give you a type of idea of what sort of place this was. Uh, even until like fairly recently, they listed the members by their husband's name. So it's like Mrs. John Smith and Mrs. Stuart Tully and all that stuff. Um, that's how they listed it. It's very staunch place. He's there on Lincoln's birthday. Lincoln's birthday is viewed as a kind of a fundraising day for the Republican Party. Uh, very raw, raw Republican Party day. It's very much a um, holiday, you know, it's a day to do fundraising, not a day to make huge pronouncements, but here he is in Little Wheeling, West Virginia, in front of, you know, a couple dozen people, no more than a hundred or two, uh, women, he, he's there, it's Lincoln's birthday, he's supposed to give a boring boilerplate speech, all right, it's supposed to be a snoozer of a speech, basically like, we're here on Lincoln's birthday to celebrate the Republican Party, what a great party, the Republican Party. Instead, he warns the women of Wheeling, West Virginia, the Republican Women's Club, that communists have infiltrated the government, and he's got a list of those working in the State Department. He claims that he has a list of members, of card-carrying members of the Communist Party, who work in the State Department. Now, we don't have too many details about the speech because 
nobody covered it because, no offense, it's the Republican Women's Club of Wheeling, West Virginia on Lincoln's birthday. I mean, no, no big reporter's going to be there. Nobody's going to get a transcript of the speech, that sort of thing. So we don't know exactly how many names he said. He might have said 57, might have said 200. I don't know. The numbers seem to grow. What does happen is that McCarthy immediately makes an impact. Almost immediately, he becomes to the top of the political world. He is thrown to the top of the political world. If you ever one side, you'll see what happens when he starts doing the hearings. Uh, I love the guy on the left who's just like, oh, Jesus Christ, this guy. He just keeps talking. Uh, McCarthy is now at the top of the Republican Party. He's getting that respect that he felt he was earned, he deserved. Uh, he starts attacking everybody. Um, he calls uh, liberals and egghead elites. You know, they're the people who are, can you know, the cancer killing America. But he also starts attacking the more moderate members of the Republican Party. He's attacking his own party. He's attacking him quite a bit. Now, this, this type of motif, this type of political um, strategy, it's pretty basic. It's a very um, impactful idea. If you're, if you're going to you know, try to get a lot of political panache quickly, an easy way to do it is basically claim that there's a problem and that you're the solution. Basically, scare people in the problem. Convince them that there's this huge problem in America, this epidemic problem of, you know, all these damn dirty communists that are just hiding out everywhere. And you are the cure. You are the cure. Uh, I should also mention that, you know, he is towing the Republican line, talking about the loss of China, talking about the loss of China. Uh, very clear in his rhetoric. He says, quote, uh, communists and queers sold 400 million Asiatic peoples into atheistic slavery. A lot going on in that statement. Uh, first of all, communists and queers. Yeah, he, he went there. Uh, second of all, 400 million, uh, more like a billion people, into atheistic slavery, like being an atheist type of slavery. Uh, this gets him, I mean, you can see all the, all the different type of appeals he's making there, a lot of different things wrapped up in his rhetoric. Uh, this hearing made for very compelling TV. Uh, this is one of the first things that was broadcast on television. We'll talk about television a little bit later. Um, television's just in its infancy in this time period. Not a lot of people have television. Uh, they're trying to figure out programming to, you know, soak up the time, and this catapults to the top. People are just fascinated by it. And it should be mentioned that a lot of Americans believe him and felt that he's doing the country a service. Uh, nowadays, it's, it's, it, and he does have a fall, and of course now McCarthy, this idea of the witch hunt is something in American rhetoric that's basically seen as something wrong. Uh, but most Americans believe in him. 80% uh, believe in his accusations at his height, and about 45% of Americans believe that he's a hero. And remember, if you go up against him, that might be communist talk. Like, you know, saying he's wrong, oh, you might be a communist. Only a communist would talk bad about McCarthy. Don't you want to rid the State Department of all these damn dirty, uh, all these damn dirty secret communists? So what kills him? What ends up, well, kills, well, he does die. Uh, what ends up going against him? Well, number one, going up against uh, General Eisenhower. Uh, basically, McCarthy later on starts saying there's communists within the uh, army. That doesn't go so well. Uh, he also says maybe um, Eisenhower might have communist sympathies. Um, Eisenhower's still a general this time period, but he's definitely the presumptive president. Um, he, both parties want him to be their nominee, so it's pretty solid that he's going to become the president. Uh, basically, Eisenhower responds, I refuse to get into a pissing contest with a skunk. He's like, I'm not going to respond to that. This guy's an idiot. 
There's also another part uh, during the trials where basically McCarthy is like really tearing into this young guy. And uh, an older gentleman's like, you know, McCarthy, have you no sense of decency? Like, when is enough enough? Like, you ruin this guy's reputation. You're just being mean to be mean. You're, you're being an asshole. So, sorry, no. Also, he does get censured by the Senate. What really ends him is when he gets censured by the Senate. He says that maybe there might be some senators who might have some communist sympathies. They're like, okay, look, just, just stop. Just stop. He gets censured by the Senate. Uh, he is not removed from office. But he does die of alcoholism later on in the 50s and 57. By this time period, uh, by the time he dies, though, he is a shell of his former self. He always had an issue with the bottle, but that really gets um, strong. Uh, he's only 48 when he dies. So, like, at his height, he's only 41. He's very, very, very young. But that about does it for uh, McCarthy. Um, his impact is limited in of its scope. And I, I should mention... To be fair to McCarthy, which is more than he deserves, there were some actual communist spies working in the U.S. government, but they weren't all that many. There weren't as many as he's talking about. So now if you go over one slide, you will see I like Ike. Yeah, now we finally get to Dwight Eisenhower. Dwight Eisenhower, uh, just a short little uh, thing about him and uh, how he's, you know, gets and becomes president. Uh, we'll get into the golden age of the middle class next lecture. Uh, so, I like Ike, I, uh, Dwight Eisenhower, you can see right there, um, General Dwight Eisenhower, he's a Supreme Allied Commander during World War II, later part of World War II. Uh, he's originally from Kansas, if you go over one slide, you'll see him as a younger man. He's originally from Kansas, he was a football standout for Army. Uh, he, you know, goes to West Point. Uh, actually, he should have never been part of the Army. Uh, he had a heart defect. Uh, he has a heart defect, and so he actually never should have been able to go to West Point. Uh, however, he is at West Point. He does go to football. Goes to football. Uh, he does participate in football. Uh, he does miss combat during World War I. Um, he's a little too young to be part of World War I. Really doesn't seem to be going much of anywhere in his military career. He's not the highest uh, general in the world uh, before things get started. Uh, for instance, he's involved in putting down the Bonist Army. Uh, that's uh, probably uh, Herbert Hoover's most infamous thing he does, where basically he sends U.S. military troops against uh, veterans. Uh, basically, Eisenhower's involved with that. That really should have ruined his political future, but it doesn't really happen. Uh, what does end up happening, though, if you go over one slide, you'll see he does start getting commissions in World War II, mainly because he's not the most offensive or dramatic officer. One thing about Eisenhower, he's a very even-keeled individual, very much not rock the boat, very lowercase c conservative, very moderate. He's not really offensive. Compared to people like Patton or MacArthur, he's a very stable, steady hand. Uh, his earliest commissions, though, his earliest commands in World War II are kind of problematic. Uh, for instance, he does get involved with a French collaborating, sorry, a Nazi collaborating French admiral. Uh, thankfully, the admiral dies. So basically, it doesn't ruin Eisenhower's career. But quietly, he's starting to get more and more esteem. He's uh, starting to pick up laurels kind of quietly, kind of under the radar. It's still a bit of a shock, though, whenever he's picked over Marshall to lead the Allied invasion of France. Uh, everybody expects that Marshall is going to be the one who's picked. Uh, Marshall, later known for the Marshall Plan. Whenever he gets picked to lead the Allied invasion, he becomes famous on D-Day. You'll see him, that is actually a picture of him on D-Day. Uh, very, very popular over there, becomes a hero over there. 
He's actually offered a knighthood. He is the first American who is offered a knighthood by the British. He does refuse, but still, he would have been a pretty popular guy um, to get a knighthood. Uh, he, he's viewed as the savior of Europe. And he's a very easy choice for president. He's a very, very, very easy choice for president. Uh, both parties offer him the nomination. Both parties offer him the nomination. Um, he chooses the Republican Party because he claims to be an old-school Republican at heart. And when I say old-school Republican, I mean like big business, small government, high tariffs. Uh, the conservative, you know, cultural stuff he's not really much into. He's a bit more moderate. Uh, they also think that he's going to be strong on the um, strong militarily and tough on the Russians. Uh, remember, that was a long criticism of Truman, is that Truman is too weak on the Russians. They don't think Truman is strong enough militarily. They think that, you know, Eisenhower's got some oomph to him. They got some grit. He'll talk smack against Stalin. Um, you know, St Stalin would respect him. That sort of individual. And by the way, this is not unusual. Americans are kind of prone in this time period, well, still in this time period, uh, of hero worship of successful generals. Uh, the, the prototype of this, of course, is I, uh, not Eisenhower, but Washington. Uh, George Washington, he was a successful general. Uh, Americans wanted him to become president. But he also had that with Andrew Jackson, another military hero. Uh, even William Henry Harrison, William Henry Harrison. He does die in 30 days, but he is also a war hero. Zachary Taylor does get involved. He's a general as well. He becomes president because of what he does during the Mexican War. And last, and certainly least, uh, U.S. Grant, who's not a very good president, but he was a good general during the Civil War. And he actually even gets some southern states to vote for him. Eisenhower gets some southern states to vote for him, you know, because Eisenhower's just that popular. Um, he doesn't get the Electoral College victory numbers of something like Nixon does, but he still gets very high Electoral College numbers. Uh, he seems to be the anti-communist guy, somebody Stalin would respect because of their past in World War II. In fact, uh, Stalin dies about a month after Eisenhower enters into office, so, you know, so much the better. Eisenhower, you know, he, he already got rid of one big communist. Now, there is a concern, though, within members of the Republican Party that Eisenhower is not conservative enough. They, they fear that Eisenhower is not conservative enough. And so to help out with that, they decide to get Richard Nixon to be his running mate. At this time period, Richard Nixon is very young. Uh, Richard Nixon is very young. Late 30s, early 40s. He's super young in this time period. Uh, remember, Richard Nixon becomes known during the Alger Hiss trial. Uh, he is Mr. Anti-Communist. There are many things you can say about Nixon, but he is definitely an anti-communist. And so he is picked kind of be the more conservative wing of the party, kind of short the votes. Uh, you see this happen with the Republican Party in 2008, whenever John McCain picked Sarah Palin. Uh, John McCain was seen as too moderate, and Sarah Palin was seen as a more conservative voice for the conservative part of the party. Now, unlike uh, Truman, Truman was never, if you go over one slide, uh, Truman was never very comfortable using the CIA and other covert means to subvert Soviet efforts. Uh, when it comes to subverting Soviet efforts, Truman was never super comfortable with that. He thought it was dirty tricks. He didn't like the idea of the CIA or other organizations uh, doing that sort of stuff. Thought they were un-American. However, Eisenhower didn't feel that way. Eisenhower was very familiar with spycraft. Uh, he worked with the OSS, which was the predecessor of the CIA during World War II. And he's okay with wet work. He's okay with, you know, things getting messy, having spies kill people, uh, things like that, doing, you know, subversive stuff. And so the CIA is perfectly okay with Eisenhower. 
Um, Eisenhower does a lot of things. He does a lot of funding for it. Uh, probably the example you should know is that picture right there. That is Eisenhower with the Shah of Iran. Uh, Iran, as you may recall, during World War II was occupied by the British and the Russians and the Americans because of the oil. Uh, basically, Britain pulls out. America wants to pull out too. Russia wants to keep in. And there was a prime minister in uh, Iran who wants the U.S. out. And the CIA makes the prime minister go away. They don't kill him. But they reinstall the Shah. The Shah is a uh, it's a heredity thing. He's kind of like a king. Uh, before he was more of a title. Now the CIA really gives him a lot of power. He becomes the ruler of Iran. And because of this, basically as part of the deal, uh, the Shah cuts the Americans into the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, uh, which is nationalized. Basically... Iran, like many other Middle Eastern countries, had been pretty much made by the British. Britain's no longer in the colony business. And so basically this oil company, which was nationalized, was just the Iranian government and the British government. Britain's pulling out. And so Iran now puts America into it. Um, this was a pretty big coup for the CIA, one of their more successful things. Uh, does this cause enmity within the Iranians? Absolutely. Uh, the Shah brings a lot of westernization to Iran. Uh, things like educating women, kind of relaxing the dress code, maybe not having as much Sharia law. Um, the Shah is Muslim, but he's more of a secular Muslim, uh, maybe even a nominal Muslim. This upsets a lot of religious individuals within Iran. Uh, basically, you're going to have the Iranian Revolution about 20 years later overthrowing this. Uh, but kind of put that on the back burner. Just know that for most of the time, um, you know, most of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, uh, the Shah is America's strong ally because the CIA put the Shah into power. And ironically, something kind of interesting, the guy in charge of the CIA's operation, all right, the guy in charge of the CIA's operation of Iran uh, is a guy by the name of Kermit Roosevelt Jr. Kermit Roosevelt Jr. is a son of, Colonel, of Kermit Roosevelt, who himself was a son of Theodore Roosevelt. So this is Theodore Roosevelt's grandson. Uh, the CIA was often called the company. They really recruited from like elite universities and like certain high-level families. Um, Kermit Roosevelt Jr. would be a perfect example of this. Um, he is given about a million dollars to bribe people in order to install the Shah in Iran. Basically, uh, bribe news media people, bribe newspaper men, maybe bribe some government officials. You know, just do bribes. Um, he, he's not really told to kill anybody, but just make some bribes to make uh, things fall their way within Iran. He's given a budget of a million dollars and told, you know, this is just the starting salary, not salary. This is the starting money. Uh, if you need more money, we'll give you more. Remember, Truman Doctrine will support anti-communism. Uh, Kermit Roosevelt only uses about $100,000. He is able to do a... Um, a coup, basically kick out that prime minister in Iran and install the Shah for a tenth of the money he's initially given. Uh, he's given a million dollars, he only spends a hundred thousand uh, dollars. That really shows you uh, just how, I don't know, susceptible the Iranian government was. Another success much closer to home is Guatemala. Uh, much successful or quite a ho uh, uh, closer to home is Guatemala, where once again the U.S. government installs people that are anti-communist. And once again, this was an early criticism of the Truman Doctrine, is maybe we're going to start supporting people who are not good people. They might be harsh dictators. Uh, the Shah of Iran definitely turns into a harsh dictator. Uh, he starts using secret police and other forces like that. 
still, um, you know, it's very Truman Doctrine. Very much we are supporting people who are not the greatest, but they claim not to be communist. Now, the thing is, Eisenhower doesn't let the American people in on these messy things, all right? The American public doesn't know what's going on. The American public is not familiar with the CIA. They're not familiar with any of these things. He's not out there advertising it. In fact, Eisenhower gets a reputation of being kind of a, kind of a lazy bum. He's not really a lazy bum. He's just very good at delegating. Uh, plays a lot of golf. The only president to ever play more golf than him was Donald Trump. But uh, that's not even a joke. Like, seriously, they track the dates. But Eisenhower, very good at delegating. And very good at uh, putting up the facade that everything is fine. Uh, allow the uh, American populace to have blissful ignorance that America has the moral high ground. And this general trust of Eisenhower continues throughout the 50s. Now, the next lecture you're going to listen to is about the 1950s. It's one I recorded for uh, my online class, but it's still the same lecture, same information, same stuff I would have talked about. So uh, with that, this is Dr. Tully for History 327, talking about the Red Scare and General, now President, Dwight David Eisenhower.